soldiers of Christ. One of the pictures that we have in the Word of God of who we are, church, our identity. And today we uh, are blessed to return to 1 Peter chapter 2. I, I will say this, for as long as we've been in 1 Peter, uh, I have felt like this feels like a little different kind of a sermon. And then I talked to my wife and she says, yeah, that was different. Uh, and I think I'm get, I think I'm understanding why two thirds of the New Testament being written by Paul, much of what a preacher preaches is is Paul's words, and you kind of feel that uh, that writing style. You kind of feel Pauline, as it were. And here, coming uh, with Peter, uh, it feels a little different. Peter has a different style. He's a different writer. Uh, still writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is still God's word, but it feels a little different. I think today it's a little different. Uh, but as, as you make your way to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read uh, from verse 1 again. Verse 1 through 12 we'll read. Our focus today will be, uh, I have in my notes 9 through 12, but I already know something. Our focus will be on verse 9. <laughs> so, so that's what we'll have. And uh, my plan is that we'll pick up uh, with the remainder through verse 12 next week. I've taken the title of today's sermon from verse 9, A Chosen Race, A Royal Priesthood, A Holy Nation. Please follow along in your Bible as I read 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice or chosen and precious in the sight of God. Verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things which they slander you as evildoers, 
they may, because of your good deeds, as they have observed them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless your word to the hearing of your people. Bless it to our sanctification. God, bless it to the saving of souls. Hide this preacher behind the cross. And we pray this in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. This text, and really much of what we've dealt with in 1 Peter over the last little while, is dealing with identity. Dealing with a Christian's identity. And perhaps uh, you're like me and you don't think about the concept of identity very often. But when we do think about it, we have to admit there's a great deal wrapped up in our identity. In how we view ourselves and how we view others and how we desire others to view us. Identity is important. In past generations, identity to me seems to have been simpler. Identity could be something as simple as where you're from. That would be a question asked often, right? Where are you from? Uh, the place where you're from was, was a great contributor to your identity. We have heard statements like this. He's a New Yorker. Or she's Californian. Now, I don't know if anybody else does it, but that's how we say it at our house. Not she's Californian, not she's from California, but she's California. That, that's how we say it. And I'm married to a girl who I don't think she's California anymore. That, that, that's, that's gone. We got all of that flushed out. <laughs> a, a, person, a person from the South, the Southern heritage, greatly contributes to your identity if you are a Southerner. Uh, and, and we don't even have to say this, but we'll go ahead and say it. Texans, your Texas identity is a great deal of your identity. Where you're from contributes to your identity, maybe more in the past than now. Your family contributes to your identity. Uh, my mother says this, and, and I know growing up uh, with my grandfather, when I would meet a new friend, no matter who I would meet, a new friend in town, he would say, who's his daddy? And, and my papa would develop an opinion of this person my age based on his daddy or his grandpa. His family was contributing to his identity, whether he liked it or not. And we come to find out that we are the product of our parents, aren't we? And, and that's not a wrong idea that our parents contribute to who we are. But in our world today, I think these factors have diminished contribution to our identity. They, they still do contribute, but not near to the extent that they once did. Uh, people move more and they move farther away from home, uh, from, from the place that they call home. So today it's common that New Yorkers and Californians and Texans are all mixed together. Not, not only here. And we notice it here. We hear Texans talking about it. We not only notice it, but it's everywhere that you go. You will find a mixture of people from all over. Uh, take me a North Louisiana native. But after over a decade in Houston and then nearly 16 years in the heart of Texas, these places where I have lived have 
changed me to a certain extent. My identity has changed. Uh, I wear a hat now. I mean, you know, that's, that's Texan, right? My identity has been altered by the places where I have been. And, and as we move from place to place, the, the chances of running into somebody that knows your daddy becomes pretty slim. So family identity contributes somewhat less. For younger people, for kids up through teenage years maybe, identity is often found in the things that we possess, in the things that we possess. I remember not having, some of you might remember having, I remember not having the genes that I wanted to define me. I remember that. Uh, I remember seeking identity through blue jeans and tennis shoes. That certain brand. That it had to be the right brand. And, and I know that's still a thing. And yes, I did own parachute pants. And yes, it was a great mistake. <laughs> it, was, it was a bad idea. But I was seeking identity through the things that I owned, through the things that I could possess. Uh, I, I see today young people seeking identity, uh, seeking to, to be unique by doing the exact same thing that everybody else is doing. <laughs> seeking to be unique by going along. Uh, I, I see us seeking identity. As you get older, as an older teenager, I went through this where your identity was defined by how you see yourself and how you see others, by the car that you drive. Uh, these, these foundations for identity are, are really poor because one shift in the fashion world and all of a sudden your parachute pants are, they're nothing anymore. And, and one shift in, in automotive uh, desire and, and things change. As we grow older, factors that contribute to our identity much more come in questions like this. What's your level of education? What particular degree do you have? From what school did you acquire that degree? What sort of work do you do? What is your job title? What awards and accomplishments do you have to your name? How much money did you have? How did you get that money? Did you earn your money? Did you inherit your money? Did you get it through some other way? Think about how much these things contribute to our identity. How we see ourselves, how we are seen by others comes primarily from these dynamics. And most of us live pretty happily in this system, defining our identity and the identity of others by money, by job, by education, by accomplishments. But we need to see that this is a terrible source, a terrible foundation for identity. So much of what makes or breaks us in those identities are far outside our reach as far as control and sometimes even influence. 
you can be defined by one good or one bad investment. And sometimes that investment wasn't even made by you. It was made by someone on your behalf. An employment-based identity can change with one change in leadership, one change in management, or, or one shift in our fickle economy. Our self-identity, our self-worth might be fine, and then someone comes along who has in these areas more and better, and all of a sudden we are on a low limb feeling terrible about ourselves when nothing has changed about our identity. Nothing has changed about us, but we see ourselves on these things. Our efforts to define ourselves, to, to define our identity in temporal ways, these are futile. At best, and at worst, they're devastating to us. In our text today, Peter helps Christians to find our identity in a much better place. To find our identity in the right place. We find our identity in who we are in relation to Jesus Christ. We've already seen in, in our study through 1 Peter that we are exiles, resident aliens. But even though we are exiles, we are God's elect. We, we've already seen that we are sons of God. And in light of this, we should live lives that reflect His holiness. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Because most recently, because Jesus is choice we are choice because Jesus is a living stone. We are living stones being built into his church. And today we come to verse nine and we see more of our identity. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And here in speaking of our identity in Christ, Peter uses words and phrases from the Old Testament to bring forward the rich identity of national Israel and apply that to the church. So in the first place we read here in verse 9 that Christians, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. You didn't know this is going to be a racial sermon. But it is. This is, this is very racially motivated. Now we ended last week considering those in the verses just above, those who were appointed to doom. Those who were appointed or destined for eternity in hell. And we pointed out that this appointment to doom is not an act of God to predestine a people for sin and then hell. Rather it is God passing over them as it were. God leaving them to do as they please and being left to our own wills in sin, many, many choose the sin that their nature loves and they plunge themselves then headlong into hell by their own choice. They are appointed to this. 
But Christians, you are not appointed to doom. You are a chosen race. You, God did not leave to your own sin. You, church, he intervened by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You, he made a new creation. You, he gave a new heart and a new nature. You are a chosen race. In the Old Testament, the physical nation of Israel serves as a type, as a picture for us. God chose them out of all the other nations of the earth. And he chose them not because they were bigger, not because they were better. Do you remember who they were when God chose them? They were nothing. When God chose them, they were one hundred year old man and one old woman with no children. They were nothing. God chose them and God's choice of national Israel pictures for us how he would choose his spiritual Israel. We who were nothing, who were less than nothing. And here Peter lets us know that you who are in Christ, his church, you are spiritual Israel. You are God's Israel. You are a chosen race. This is also a good time for us to note here. Biblically speaking, there are two races, two races of humanity. There's God's chosen race and there's everybody else. There's God's chosen race and there's everybody else. So if you want to know about our identity, don't our, our race rather, don't look to our skin color. Don't look to our ethnicity. Look to our King, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer. Look to our brother in humanity, Jesus. We are a chosen race. Secondly, Christians, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. Royal priesthood. It may not jump out to you instantly, but this royal priesthood. These two words together is very unique. We are a royal priesthood. In, in the Old Testament, there was a sharp distinction, a, a sharp separation rather, between royalty and priesthood. Between kings and priests, there was a sharp separation. Priests were not kings and kings were not priests. There's the story of King Uzziah, one king who let his strength and his success go to his head. And he entered the temple to burn incense on the altar, something that only a priest was supposed to do. He took on the role of priest as he was the king. Long story short, God struck him with leprosy. God struck him and killed him with a slow death. By having leprosy, he was immediately expelled from the temple and for the rest of his life was never allowed to come back in to the temple. And because of his leprosy, he was unable to sit on the throne and rule his people, so he lost his throne as well. Because he tried to combine king and priest. It was very important in the Old Testament to keep these offices separate in Israel so that 
the one who would come, the Messiah would be highlighted because he would come from the tribe of Judah, the kingly tribe. He would be our reigning king. Genesis 49, 10 refers to uh, Christ's coming and Christ's kingdom uh, saying the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And though he was not, he was king. He, boy, did you hear what I said? He is king. Not he was king. He is king. And, and though he is king, and though he was born of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Levi, which was the priestly tribe, he would be our priest as well, according to the order of Melchizedek, not of Levi, but of Melchizedek. Jesus is the king and priest. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes this. We read this in Hebrews, seeing that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in, to help in time of need. Hebrews is pointing out here that Jesus the King is our great high priest. He is priest and king. And because of our union with Christ, this text in 1 Peter reminds us that we are a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. Verse 5 in this same chapter also refers to the church as priests offering spiritual sacrifices. Well, that's the kind of priests we are. No more physical sacrifices are required. No more sheep, no more goats, no more bulls. The Lamb of God has been offered and the Lamb of God's sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice, is the sufficient and final sacrifice for sin. Now we offer sacrifices of praise. We offer worship. And, and the smoke of our sacrifice of worship ascends to God's nostrils and is an aroma to Him. An aroma. Now when our sacrifices are offered in our own strength, from, from our own flesh, our sacrifice sends an aroma that is a stench and an offense to God. We see this pictured in Israel as well when he said, I want no more of those sacrifices. But a pleasing aroma ascends to God when we offer sacrifices in keeping with Romans 12. When, when we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable. Christians, that's, that's what we are to offer as a sacrifice to God, as a royal priesthood. We are to offer ourselves as living, living sacrifices. Well, we think of sacrifices as dead sacrifices. And how many of us would say, well, sure, I would die for the sake of Christ. I would die for the cause of Christ. But Christian, will you live for the cause of Christ? It would be easier in so many ways to die for the cause of Christ than it is to live Daily in Christ. And this 
offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. This is our reasonable act of worship. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Thirdly, the text tells us, church, we are a holy nation, a holy nation. Again, this echoes back to the picture of national Israel. Israel was a nation. And according to this text, we are as well a a kingdom nation under Christ, our king. But not just a nation. We are a holy nation. The thing that should mark out, the thing that should distinguish us is holiness. We are a holy nation and our holiness comes in Two kinds. First, we are positionally holy. Imputed holiness from Christ. Our holiness is not inherent or native to us. We get it from Jesus Christ. Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to everyone who believes on him so that we are positionally, that is before God, we are holy. And this holiness is a once and for all holiness. But we are also being made holy, practical holiness through sanctification. This is the progressive work of Christ in us by the word and the spirit. And this work of sanctification is not for preachers. It's not for professional Christians. It's not just for some Christians, it's for every believer in Christ. What is God doing in you? What is Jesus doing in you, Christian? The work of sanctification. This is God's will for you. And we are increasingly more and more, we should be seeing victory over sin. And more and more, we should be seeing a love for righteousness. This Holiness should be in us. Peter has already spoken to us in some detail about holiness, about God's holiness and our call to be holy for God is holy. So we are a holy nation. Then fourthly and finally, church, we are a people for God's own possession. We are a people for God's own possession. This calls us back to Isaiah 43. Where God said Israel, uh, he said of Israel, this people I have formed for myself. I have formed for myself. A people for his possession. And and now, here in 1 Peter, this language that was in the Old Testament spoken of about national Israel. Now here, it is applied to the church. We are a people for God's own possession. As we understand possession We need to understand it to be more than mere ownership. More than mere ownership. Now, earlier I talked about possessions, and that's how we use the term. I possess a pair of parachute pants. We possess things, and we mean ownership. But here, there's more meant here than just ownership. All people, all people are gods by way of ownership. God has made all people and we then belong to him. But this statement borrowed from Isaiah brings forward uh, into into 1 Peter this 
meaning of possession that is more. We are a people for God's own possession because he has redeemed us. Listen to Isaiah 43, 1. I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. See, it's more than just I made you. You are mine. I have redeemed you, he says to his people. I have called you by my name. You are mine. A people for God's own possession means more than just ownership. It means we are a redeemed people. We are his in a, in a different way. We are called by his name, which speaks to the fact that we're, we're not only slaves, we're not only servants of God, we're not only owned by God, but we are redeemed. We are his children. We are children of God, a people for God's own possession. What a, what a blessing. All of these are blessings. Uh, this, this whole statement that speaks to our identity, church, is it's a great statement and a great blessing. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This is who we are in Christ. This is the identity of believers. This is the identity of the church. And we'll come back to this and we'll see the foundation of this identity. But first, let's look at the purpose, the purpose of this identity. Why did God do all of this? Why are we redeemed? Why are we a chosen race and a royal priesthood? Why are we a holy nation for God's own possession? Why? What is the purpose? And the next clause in verse 9 speaks to this. It says, so that. So that. So that is, is a statement of purpose. To what end did God pour out these blessings on us, church? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. We are redeemed to proclaim His excellencies. We are a royal priesthood that we would bring worship. We are His people to attribute to God the glory that is His. Sometimes we say give God glory, right? We don't give God anything. We attribute to God what is already His. And if you say give God glory, it's okay. We're going to be fine. We all know what we mean by that. We are His people. He has called us. He has redeemed us. He has given us all of these truths of our identity in Christ to proclaim His excellencies. This reminds us of the catechism question. What is the chief end of man? What is man's chief end? And we know the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We are created to glorify God. Are you looking for fulfillment? I don't find fulfillment in my job. I don't find fulfillment in my school or in my studies. I don't find fulfillment in my home or in my yard. I don't find, look, you may find little bits and pieces of fulfillment in those things. You're not going to be filled up in fulfillment in any of those things. Our purpose and where we find fulfillment 
is in bringing glory to God. And every man, woman, and child will bring glory to God. Well, I know my neighbor doesn't because no, every man, woman, and child will bring glory to God. It is important for us to know that. Everyone does glorify God. Those who are left in their sin, those who are, to use the words of the text, appointed to the doom of hell, they are created to the praise of His glorious justice. And we, who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, we who are a people for God's own possession, the elect of God, we are foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ and we are to the praise of His glorious grace. In all things, God is glorified. Church, we are saved so that. We are saved so that we may proclaim His excellencies. In Ephesians 2.10 says it a different way. We are saved unto good works that God has ordained for us that we might walk in them. But what is that? When we walk in the good works that God has ordained for us, what is that but proclaiming His excellencies, bringing glory to Him. This is the purpose for which we are saved. This is the purpose for which He has given us all these blessings. Now, in studying for this message, I, I, I see this focus on identity and it struck me how much we talk about identity in our day. How much we think about identity. And, and so many people think that identity can simply be invented with no basis. With no basis in anything concrete or even with, with, with no basis in reality. If someone tells us, I identify as, we're about to be asked to suspend all reason and logic and truth. But this is not, Christians, this is not how our identity in Christ is. Our identity in Christ is, is not based in nothing. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. But that's not based in fantasy. And that's not based in emotion. Now I hope I hope that from time to time we have some emotions. I hope we do. I hope we are moved emotionally by this truth. But it's not based in emotion. Our identity has its foundation. That is, our identity is grounded in Jesus Christ. For He is, and we are as He is because He redeemed us. All of these things. Well, he is a living stone and we are living stones. And he is a royal priest and we are royal. All these things. He is and we are as he is because we are in him. Because he has redeemed us. He has, the text says, called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church, our identity is not something made up. It's not based on where we were born. It's not based on who your daddy is. 
It's not based on the clothes you wear or the car you drive. Your, your Christian identity is not found in your wealth or in your job or in your education or in your accomplishments. Church, your identity, your worth, your, your definition is in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. I started to begin this message by saying, we're going to talk about our identity and I hope that it wells up within us pride and boasting. But what do we have to boast in? Christ. And church, let us boast in Christ. Let us well up with, with pride in Christ. I don't mean pride in a sinful way. Maybe there's a better word. Let us boast in Christ. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, we also are in the world. That's from 1 John. Love is perfected that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, we also are in the world. We are as secure as Christ. Because we are in Christ, united with him in his death and in his resurrection. Church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm here. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would apply these things to our heart. Your truth. Of what you have done. In the covenant of redemption. Before the world began. What you decreed. What you have accomplished. Through Jesus Christ and his life. And death. And resurrection. And what you have applied to your people. By your word and spirit. God, we pray that that work, that work of salvation would continue. We pray for those, our loved ones, our family, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers who need Christ. Help our speech to be seasoned with grace. Help us to be living examples of the grace of God. The great salvation that we have in Christ may it be seen through our lives. Apply these things to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen.